0: One of my favorite movies is uh, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. It's a 1966 uh, Western directed by Sergio Leone and starring Clint Eastwood as the good, Lee Van Cleef as the bad, and Eli Wallach as the ugly. The plot revolves around three gunslingers competing to find a fortune in buried Confederate gold amid the violent chaos of the American Civil War. Clint Eastwood plays Blondie who's a good, but nowhere near perfect, humane bounty hunter. Lee Van Cleef plays Angel Eyes, who's a ruthless, borderline sadistic mercenary who takes pleasure in killing and always finishes a job for which he's paid. Eli Wallach plays Tuco, or the rat, who's a fast-talking, cunning, cagey, resilient, and resourceful Mexican bandit who is wanted by the authorities for a long list of crimes. Throughout the movie, Blondie and Tuco, they run a scam on the sheriffs in the country. Blondie turns Tuco in, He collects the bounty, and then he saves him right before he's about to be hanged. And after a number of these rescues, Tuco complains about being the one sticking his neck out. And Blondie leaves him for dead in the desert. Tuco survives, and he captures Blondie, and force marches him through the desert until he's near death with dehydration. While in the desert, they have a chance encounter with a Civil War soldier who has buried the Confederate gold. He gives Tuco the name of the cemetery, he gives Blondie the name of the grave where the gold was buried. So Tuco needing Blondie's help, he nurses him back to life. Then they find themselves in a Union prison camp where Angel Eyes is also trying to discover the location of the cemetery the gold is buried in. All three embark on a quest to find this gold and in the final scene there's a three-way duel to decide who gets the gold. In the end, Blondie wins the duel with angel eyes. He gets the gold, and he actually splits it with Tugo. But not before making Tugo dig up the gold and sparing his life once again. You know, Blondie's character is considered the good one. But of course, he has many flaws, and he doesn't always do the right thing. You know, through the movie, he goes through a lot of ups and downs. But in the end, he gets the reward. You know, this story of a good but flawed and nowhere near a perfect person, going through many ups and downs, but getting the reward in the end reminds me of the story of Joseph. I'm sorry, Jacob. (laughs) He's the good one, in that he will be the next covenant carrier of God's chosen people. You know, in his life he's been a liar, he's been a deceiver, and of course he's been deceived himself. His life has been full of good, bad, and ugly, some of which is of his own doing, But God has rewarded him with a new name, and later his descendants will possess the promised land, and he will have children like the dust of the earth. So in our passage this morning, Jacob's good, bad, and ugly will continue. You know, he gets a new son, but he loses a favored wife. He also has a new sorrow because of the actions of his firstborn, and he suffers another death in the family. But in the end, Jacob is given a new standing, as he takes over the patriarchal role from his father. God's blessing continues to be poured out and God's plan continues to move forward no matter what. No matter what happens, be it death or birth or heinous crime. And that brings us to our big idea this morning, which is the good, the bad, and the ugly of life can't stop God's promises, blessing and plan for his people. According to God's will, his promises, blessing and plan it can't be stopped in the world, can't be stopped in his church, and it can't be stopped in our lives because of what we do or because of what happens to us. Before we dive into this passage, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We humbly ask for your Holy Spirit to speak to us as we open, our, as we open your word. May we be attentive to your spirit as we open our hearts and minds to what you want us to know and what you want us to learn today. We thank you for this opportunity to be gathered together in your house with your people for this purpose. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's three points to the passage this morning. The first is a new son, and we're in Genesis 35, verses 16 to 20. You can follow along as I read that, and this is what God's word says. that they moved on from Bethel, while they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth and have great difficulty. And as she was having great difficulty in childbirth, the midwife said to her, don't despair, for you have another son. As she breathed her last, for she was dying, she named her son Ben-Onai, but his father named him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem, Over her tomb, Jacob set up a pillar, and to this day, the pillar marks Rachel's tomb. So after God meets Jacob at Bethel, and reaffirms the promises to him, Jacob and his family leave. They're going in the direction of Ephrath, and while they're still some distance away, Rachel goes into labor. And we're told that she has great, great difficulty in in this labor. You know, she she must have been really pregnant when, when they were at Bethel. You know, so maybe we might wonder why they just didn't stay there until she had had the baby. You know, it doesn't say that God commanded them to leave Bethel like he did to leave Shechem. In fact, back in verse 1, God told Jacob to settle in Bethel. So we're not told why they moved on. But it may have had something to do with wanting to return home to, to reunite with his father Isaac. And this would have been keeping with his, new vow, with his vow that we saw back in Genesis twenty eight twenty one that if God would protect Jacob so he could return safely to his father's household, then the Lord would be his God. So in the middle of her difficult childbirth, her midwife tells her, don't despair because you're having a son. Now that might be a weird thing to say to a woman who's dying in childbirth, but in that day and age, it would have been the most comforting thought for a woman who knew that she was gonna die giving birth. You know, we know that having a son was important it doesn't admit that the lineage and the family name would be carried on. So the midwife, knowing that Rachel's gonna die, she comforts her with the fact that she's having a baby boy. Rachel, knowing that she was dying, named her son Benonai, which means son of my trouble or sorrow. You know, it seems that Rachel refused the comfort that her midwife tried to give her. You know, if we look back, interestingly, this is the only child born to Jacob for which the author does not give the meaning of their name. Next we see something that happens that's very rare in the Bible. Jacob changes his newborn son's name. That did not happen in the Bible. Once you were named is what what your name was. But he named his son Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. The right hand was the side of honor, power, and favor. It brought to mind skill and wisdom. Psalm 110.1 says this, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And Ecclesiastes 10.2 says this, The heart of the wise inclines to the right, but the heart of the fool to the left. Saul, the first king of Israel, and Paul, the apostle, both came from the tribe of Benjamin. But why did Jacob change his name? You know, a lot of times, children whose mothers died in childbirth were blamed. so maybe Jacob didn't want his son to be saddled with that guilt. He probably also wanted memory of his beloved wife to be a pleasant one. Because he was the son of the favored wife, Jacob gave Benjamin a special place at his right hand. This event would have reminded the first hearers of a couple things. First, Rachel named her firstborn son Joseph, which Pastor read this morning, which means, may God add. Rachel's prayer to the Lord when she had Joseph was that he would give her another son. This birth was a fulfillment of that prayer. Second, it would have also reminded the first hearers of Rachel's words to Jacob in Genesis 30, verse 1 Give me children or I will die. You know, ironically, having this child has caused Rachel's death. And third, they would have been reminded of Jacob's judgment of death on the one who stole Laban's household gods. Honestly, it may be significant that her death comes after Jacob orders his family to get rid of their false gods. But we shouldn't believe that Rachel's death was a judgment from God. Wearsby says this, Life is full of good and bad. Joys and sorrows. And the same baby that brought joy also brought tears. Which reminds us of our big idea that the good, the bad, and the ugly of life can't stop God's promises, can't stop God's blessing, can't stop his plan for his people. Finally, we're told that Rachel dies and she's buried on the way to Ephrath, probably on or near the site where Benjamin was was born. Jacob honored his wife's beloved memory by putting a pillar over her burial tomb. And the author tells us that the pillar was still there when Genesis was written. This is the third time that Jacob has erected a pillar to commemorate some event or person. In Genesis 28:18, he commemorates God's meeting him at Bethel for the first time. Genesis 35, 14, he commemorates God's meeting him at Bethel a second time. And here he commemorates Rachel's death. Matthew says the location of Benjamin's birth and Rachel's tomb are important to the narrative, providing a reference point for future generations, indicating that the last son was born in the promised land. Even Rachel's burial demonstrated that God's word was truthful. Although she lived outside of Canaan, her final resting place was permanently in the land of promise, as the matriarch of Israel's tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh through Joseph, and Benjamin. <clears throat> Our second point this morning is called A New Sorrow, and that's found in chapter 35, verses 21 to 22a. Follow along as I read those verses. This is what God's word says. Israel moved on again and pitched his tent behind, beyond Migdal Adar. While Israel was living in that region, Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine, Bilha, and Israel heard of it. So again, we see Jacob or Israel and his family move again. And again, we may believe he's wanting to return to his father's house, but we see him pitching his tent beyond Migdal Adar. You know, Jacob doesn't just pass through on his way to his father, but he pitches his tent, meaning that he settles down there. We don't know why he does this, but knowing his history we could surmise that nothing's good going to come from it. Genesis 33:18 and 19, we saw that Jacob arrived and camped within the site of Shechem. He buys a plot of land from the father of Shechem and he pitches his tent there. And when we got to chapter 35, we heard what happened to Dinah and to all the males living in Shechem. So we don't know why he settled there, but it sets the stage for Jacob's sorrow. We're told that Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, sleeps with his father's concubine, Bilhah. Notice that Bilhah, who has always been mentioned in relation to Rachel, is now identified in relation to Jacob, making this a crime against his father. We may wonder what's going on here, but if we think about who Bilhah is, it may shed some light on it. Remember, she was the maidservant given by Laban to Rachel upon marrying Jacob. She had two sons to Jacob, Dan and Naphtali. <clears throat> now that Rachel was dead, it's possible that Bilhah would take over the favored place that Rachel held with Jacob and in his household. Also, if we remember, Reuben was Leah's firstborn son. So this may have been a way to disgrace Bilhah so his mother could take over the favored place. You know, also Reuben, as the firstborn, would have received his father's concubines, servants, et cetera, upon Jacob's death. But Jacob was not yet dead. This is the equivalent to the prodigal son wanting his inheritance before his father actually died. That wasn't how it was done in that culture. But all the commentaries pretty much agree that Reuben wanted to steal Jacob's authority within the family. For a son to sleep with his father's wife was a declaration that he was now the head of the family. Now we might ask a few questions. Did Reuben think he could run the family better than his father? Is Jacob losing control of his family? In the last chapter, we saw Dinah, who's defiled, and Jacob hears about it, but what does he do? He waits till her brothers get home instead of taking care of himself as the father and the head of the household. What's he do here when Reuben sleeps with Bilhah? It says he heard about it, but scripture doesn't say that he did anything. His authority seems to be eroding more and more with time. Winham says this, posing these questions before the Joseph story gives us a sense of tension between Jacob and his sons descended from Leah and between the sons of Bilhah and Rachel on the one side and the sons of Leah on the other. This short, isolated episode gives us an indication that the good, the bad, and the ugly and the next generation will again concern birthright, inheritance, and favoritism. What Reuben did would have been considered a heinous crime and the penalty would have been death in God's curse. We notice that Israel, the name Israel, is mentioned three times in verses 21 and 22, which emphasizes the tribal implications of Reuben's crime against his father. This coming on the heels of God's blessing of Jacob and reminding him of his new name shows that this crime was committed not only against Jacob, but against God. By like trying to take Jacob's place within the family, he's also trying to take Jacob's place as the next covenant carrier that God had bestowed on Jacob. And we'll have to wait another 14 chapters to see how Jacob finally handles this matter. But this episode is gone as quickly as it came, which speaks to the author's horror at what transpired. In Genesis so far, we've seen that Scripture doesn't gloss over sin and wickedness, but it doesn't sensationalize it either. The third point this morning is called a new standing. And that's found in chapter 25, verses 22a to 29. This is what God's word says. Jacob had 12 sons, the sons of Leah, Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar it, it, and Zebulon the sons of Rachel Joseph and Benjamin the sons of Rachel's servant Bilhah Dan and Naphtali and the sons of Leah's servant Zilpah Gad and Asher these were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padon Aram Jacob came home to his father Isaac in Mamre near Kiriath Arba that is Hebron where Abraham and Isaac had stayed. Isaac lived 180 years, and he breathed his last and died, and was gathered to his people, old and full of years. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. What we see first is a list of the 12 sons of Jacob. You know, with the birth of Benjamin, the family of Jacob is now complete, and the sons will be the ancestors of the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. Now, the list starts with Leah and her, ch- and her children, with Reuben specifically being named as the firstborn. Next comes Rachel and her two sons. These are followed by the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah. This listing of the sons by their mothers focuses us on the rivalry between the brothers that we'll see in the Joseph story. This list also emphasizes the faithfulness of God in keeping his promise that Jacob would have offspring like the dust of the earth. And the fact that they reside in Canaan fulfills the promise of land to Jacob. The list of names is followed by the caveat that these sons of Jacob were born in Padan Aram. But we know that Benjamin was born in Canaan in the promised land. So what was the author trying to tell us? You know, there are times when the Bible is more interested in making a point than being factual. The point is that just like the first hearers, the 11 of Jacob's sons, who would be the ancestors of the 12 tribes, were also born outside the land of promise. They also had to make a pilgrimage to the promised land, just like the first hearers are gonna have to do later on. The first hearers are better able to relate to the 12 sons of Jacob, who would become their ancestors. The fact that Benjamin was born in the Promised Land would also impact the nation of Israel later on. Being born in the land meant that he had a clear title to it. And later on, the place where he was born and where Rachel was buried will be part of the land that the tribe of Benjamin occupies when they come out of slavery and enter into the Promised Land. This list of Jacob's sons is a witness to God's blessing that these sons were only the beginning of the chosen nation to come. This list is also evidence that God's promises, blessing, and plan will continue in spite of sin and death. Next we see the reuniting of Isaac and Jacob and then the obituary of Isaac as his Toledot comes to close. Notice the lack of emotion in their meeting, unlike the lack of emotion we saw when Jacob and Esau reunited. It's significant that Isaac is now living in Mamre, or Hebron. The last we saw, he was living in Beersheba. It may have been that Isaac moves to Mamre when Rebecca dies. If you remember, we're never really told that she's dead. But he may have moved there so she could be buried in the cave of Machpelah. We know from Genesis 49, 31, that she was buried in the family tomb that Abraham had purchased in Genesis 23, 17. Now this move also makes sense that Isaac would be buried in the same tomb when he passed away. The identification of Hebron associates Jacob with his ancestors, Abraham and Isaac. Next we see Isaac's obituary. He lived 180 years, which ironically is 80 years after he thought he was dying when Jacob stole his blessing, when Jacob stole the blessing. Chronologically, this means that he lived to see the day that Joseph was sold into slavery. It says Isaac breathed his last, was gathered to his people old and full of years. Gathered to his people means that he was part of an ongoing family beyond the grave. He was also old and full of years, meaning that he lived to be a ripe old age and was satisfied with the good long life that he had he was ready to be reunited with his family, who had gone before. This parallels the obituary of Abraham, which connects Isaac, and subsequently Jacob, to the chosen patriarchs. Isaac was admittedly the least talked about of the patriarchs, but he lived longer than his father and his son. He was a most important bridge between Abraham and Jacob, even though less is recorded about his life than about his father, sons and grandson, Joseph. Isaac was essential to the survival of the chosen family and to the perpetuation of the promises of God. Genesis as 21, 12b says this, God talking to Abraham, listen to whatever Sarah tells you because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Finally, we see that His sons Esau and Jacob both bury him. Now this death of Isaac brought his sons together, just as the death of Abraham brought together Ishmael and Isaac. The mention of Esau sets us up for his genealogy, which we're going to see in the next chapter. Winham says this. Isaac is buried in the only real estate acquired by Abraham in Canaan at Mamre a place where the promises have been fully revealed. So the death and burial of Isaac in ripe old age in Mamre is a pledge of Israel's ultimate possession of the land. His father's death also changed Jacob's standing. Jacob is now the head of the covenant family and heir to the family blessings and promises. He not only acquired Isaac's great wealth, but he also inherited all that was involved in the Abrahamic covenant his God would now be known as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As I conclude today, I want to talk about two things that we can notice in chapter 35. I'm going to go back a little bit to what Pastor Stewart talked about last week. The first is spiritual renewal. You know, Jacob needed to be spiritually renewed. Why? Why? First, because human memory is faulty. Jacob needed to be reminded of the things that he had promised the Lord. Second, because human commitment is fickle. Think about why Jacob had to order his family to get rid of their foreign gods. It's because they had foreign gods. Wow. He knew all along that his family had these gods, but he chose not to do anything until he was confronted by God about it. Third, because human fortunes change. Jacob made these promises before he had a family and was responsible for anything other than himself. Fourth, because human life is fleeting. Deborah, Rachel, and Isaac all die in this chapter. You know, our lives become so full of work, family, play, whatever it is, that sometimes our spiritual life gets left behind. And when death happens, everything's turned upside down. We need to be spiritually renewed to meet life's tragedies in a proper godly way. So how is spiritual renewal experienced? First, Jacob needed to get back to basics. The Lord called him back to Bethel where he reminded him, of his new name and reminded him of the earlier promises made to him. And what did Jacob do? He responded by setting up a pillar and pouring a drink offering on it. Second, Jacob needed to get rid of barriers. He needed to rid himself of the foreign gods that he had accumulated. He needed to get rid of those things that were producing conflict in his spiritual walk with the Lord. Without doing this, there would be no lasting spiritual renewal. That leads us to our first next step this morning on the back of your communication cards. What are the things in our lives that are producing conflict in our spiritual walk with the Lord? Think about that. And maybe this first next step is for you. To search my life and get rid of the foreign gods that are producing conflict in my spiritual walk with the Lord. The next step in our spiritual renewal after getting rid of the foreign gods in our lives is daily devotion to God. That means daily being in God's word, hiding God's word in our hearts. This means regular participation in public worship and consistent fellowship with God's people where sharing and caring for one another happens frequently. And one of the things we have here at Idaville Church to help with our spiritual renewal is Spiritual Life Journal. And the Spiritual Life Journal with our theme, More Like Jesus, just came out and it's on the slat wall in the foyer. Inside, there's questions that you can ask about yourself and your relationship with God. There's the memory verses that we are learning as a congregation. The daily Bible reading plan is in there. The Spiritual Life Journal could be a guide to help you be spiritually renewed in 2023. That brings us to our second next step which is to use the spiritual life journal as a guide for my spiritual renewal this year. Now, the second thing we can notice in chapter 35 is that despite his spiritual renewal, Jacob's troubles were not over. Spiritual renewal doesn't exempt the people of God from the good, the bad, and the ugly. There's still consequences of our own actions and actions of those around us. That spiritual renewal does equip God's people to be strong enough to handle anything that comes their way in a world where sin, death, and heinous crime abounds. Wearsby says this, it means walking with God by faith, knowing that he is with us and trusting him to help us for our good and his glory, no matter what difficulties he permits to come our way. As the ushers prepare to take up the tithes and offering, as the praise team comes forward to lead us, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we leave this place this morning. I pray that you would speak to our hearts and minds about our own personal spiritual renewal. Help us to search ourselves and get rid of the foreign gods in our lives that keep us from having a productive personal relationship with you. God, us through times of good, bad, and ugly. And never let us forget that they can't stop your promises, your blessing, and your plan from being fulfilled. In Jesus' name, amen.